The Alamo Scouts functioned in a democratic manner seldom found in the U.S. Army. They were formed into small teams consisting of one officer and four or five men. Each team had a voice in selecting its own personnel. Each enlisted man was asked to name by private ballot the three officers in the order of preference to whom he would be most willing to follow on a dangerous mission. Junior officers, in turn, were asked what men they desired to have with them. Missions were selected by the G-2 intelligence officer of Kruger's 6th Army. Maturity, experience, and availability at the ASTC were the primary considerations for choosing a specific team for a specific mission. Alamo scouts were under operational control of the G-2 until their mission was accomplished, after which they returned to ASTC to await another task. Although new to the U.S. Army in concept, the Alamo scouts wasted no time in springing into action. In New Guinea, they planned the kidnapping of General Hatazo Adachi, commander of the Japanese 18th Army. Penetrating deep into Japanese territory, the team of scouts hid near Adachi's headquarters and watched him and his bodyguards for several days. They had secured a floor plan of the house he occupied, including the direction each door opened. They mapped the route of the general's daily horseback ride along a jungle trail. However, the region was thick with Japanese troops, and Adachi himself was constantly surrounded by guards. Withdrawing to their own positions, the Alamo scouts were eager to get the green light to try to snatch the Japanese general, this despite the heavy odds against success of the bold venture. When the scheme was put before General Kruger, he turned thumbs down. He agreed that the kidnapping would be a spectacular achievement and reap a great deal of propaganda value, but he held that no stunt was worth the life of a single Alamo scout. The 64-year-old Kruger doubted if the raiders would get back alive, but all of them were willing to try. As MacArthur's drive up the coast of New Guinea rolled inexorably onward, the missions of the Alamo scouts were greatly increased, especially after feedback from their perilous tasks reached higher army commanders. At Pigoon Island, a team of scouts under Lieutenant Robert S. Sumner of Portland, Oregon, was dispatched to rescue three downed American airmen. For five hours they searched in vain for the men. Robert Sumner recalled subsequent events. As we were returning to our pickup point along the shore, a Jap patrol of platoon size spotted us. We signaled the PT boat offshore we were coming and backed into the water with our weapons held ready. Then the Japs opened fire on us and we shot back as best we could while nearly chest deep in water. The machine guns on the PT boat joined in. Bullets were whistling past our heads from both directions. Showing the inner service teamwork that was the key to MacArthur's success, the PT boat radioed an Australian bow fighter flying offshore. It zoomed down, machine guns blazing, and scattered the Japanese. Meanwhile, Sumner and his men reached the PT boat, which proceeded to execute the maneuver known in the military as hauling ass. On a mission to Japanese-held Hollandia, a team of Alamo scouts led by Lieutenant John M. Dove of Hollywood, California, was put ashore by a PT boat and spent the day prowling the locale. When they were returning to their pickup point along the coast at night, Lieutenant Dove took his men through the heart of a small village where Japanese troops were sleeping in huts and along both sides of the road. John Dove recalled why he had taken this hazardous route. 
All of us were bone-tired after having climbed around the mountains for many hours. When we approached this village, I noticed that there were swamps with neck-high mud on each side. So we killed the two sentries the Japs had left to guard the trail and stole through the village as silently as we could. In late September 1944, 6th Army Intelligence learned from natives that a former Dutch governor, his entire family, and a large number of Javanese workers cultivating a huge plantation along the Maori River in New Guinea were being held as hostages by a Japanese force occupying the region. A team of Alamo scouts slipped into the area on the following night, and an escaped Filipino prisoner who knew the site drew diagrams in the sand for the Americans. These rough etchings even showed the location of doors and windows in the huts where the Japanese slept. The scouts were told the precise place the guards stacked their weapons each night, secure in the belief that no armed Americans could possibly reach them in their remote locale. After reconnoitering the area along the Maori River, the Alamo scouts returned to their base on Biak Island, where a decision was made to rescue the Dutch hostages and the Javanese plantation workers. Selected to lead the raid was Lieutenant Thomas J. Roundsville of Atoka, Oklahoma, who had joined the Alamo scouts from another rugged outfit, the U.S. 11th Airborne Division. Also coming from the 11th Airborne, Lieutenant William E. Nellist of Eureka, California, was selected as the assistant team leader. Eleven enlisted men, a Filipino interpreter, and three native guides rounded out the team that would have to deal with an estimated 30 Japanese soldiers guarding the hostages. On the dark night of October 4th, the Alamo scouts team paddled toward shore in rafts that had been dropped over the sides of PT boats hovering near the mouth of the Maori River. The scouts were heavily armed, Tommy guns, rifles, smoke and fragmentation grenades, and nasty-looking trench knives. Crawling silently onto the beach and into the seclusion of thick vegetation, Tom Roundsville and Bill Nellist sent guides along the shoreline and determined that there were no Japanese nearby. Now the scouts began marching along a muddy, slippery trail that would lead them to the village objective three miles inland. It was an arduous trek, requiring more than six hours. In the eerie blackness, the scouts paused. Thomas Roundsville recalled, I promptly sent our guide, who had been an orderly for the Japs there and escaped from them, into the village. He was thoroughly acquainted with the locale, and I wanted to get last-minute information on enemy dispositions. About an hour later, the guide returned and brought out a few Jap weapons with him. He said the Japs were positioned just as they had been when he escaped from them seven days before. Rapidly, a rescue plan was hatched. Lieutenant Nellis took four scouts to a point where the Japanese were known to have two machine guns. When Nellis heard firing from the village, he and his men were to wipe out the pair of automatic weapons, then hurry to cover a trail over which the Japanese might rush in reinforcements. Tom Roundsville remembered, At 4.10 a.m. we pitched grenades, then charged with knives, shouting bloody murder at the top of our lungs. Our attack came as a complete surprise. We killed 14 Japs before they could get out of their huts. Four other Japs ran to a trench, where our boys knocked off two of them. The other two, wearing only shorts, fled into the jungle. Since time was important, we didn't bother to chase them. 22-year-old Corporal Andy Smith, a former civil service employee in St. Louis, was one of those who scoured each native hut, 
to make sure no Japanese was in hiding. Smith recalled a curious incident. In one of the huts I found a Jap phonograph, and there was a large stack of records next to it. Apparently the Japs had passed the time by playing music. I looked through the records and found one by Bing Crosby. I immediately played it, and it sounded real good. In the meantime, Lieutenant Nellist and his men quickly wiped out the Japanese machine gunners, and an interpreter and two guides dashed to the main enclosure to alert the Dutch and Javanese hostages to get ready to move out. Rapidly, the bewildered Dutch governor, the thirteen other members of his family, and scores of Javanese workers were rounded up. With Alamo scouts in front and back, the long column began trudging over a narrow path toward shore. Shortly after dawn, Roundsville, Nellis, their men, the hostages, guides, and interpreters were aboard two PT boats headed to Biak Island. Not long after this bold mission, 6th Army G-2 was told that a hundred missionaries were being held prisoners by a force of Japanese at Goya, an inland village in New Guinea. A rescue mission was laid on. An Alamo scout team led by Lieutenant Michael J. Sombar of Delaware, Wyoming, trudged for six miles along a jungle trail, often in knee-deep mud, to reach Goya. In less than twenty minutes, the Japanese force was wiped out and the missionaries freed. One nun threw her arms around Lieutenant Sombar's neck and exclaimed, It's good to see an American again. On the trail leading back to the beach where two PT boats were waiting, a Japanese officer who had been taken prisoner refused to carry the pack of an elderly missionary who was exhausted. Speaking in flawless English, he protested that the Geneva Convention held that officers could not be forced to perform manual labor. A nearby scout motioned toward three missionaries to get out.